Hi, and welcome to the podcast channel, What of Education. I'm your host, Monica Theron, and my co-host today is Joanna van der Merwe, Center for Innovations, Privacy Protection Lead at Leiden University. Our guests are Dan Romain, the team leader of professional development at ICLON, and Bastian Mielke, a second-year student at Leiden University College. In this episode titled Convenience of Digital Tools, we will focus on a fictional digital tool we created as an experimental part of the podcast and look at various aspects of how digital tools, especially in education, have solved and complicated our lives. Perhaps a love-hate relationship, one could say. In order to understand the conversations coming up next, however, I'll have to put things into perspective for you. The ad that you'll hear next is the fictional tool we created. We also sent this tool to our guests prior to the interview so that they could listen to it objectively and voice their concerns if they had any. Our guests were also not aware of the fact that this tool is fake right up until the moment of the interview. But first, you also need to hear it. So here we go. In 2020, the world learned that online learning is not only viable, but a rapidly growing mode of education. Digitance by Studylytics is a data-driven tool that takes an analytical approach to class participation. When a student contributes by speaking in a remote lesson via the chat function or on discussion boards, Digitant uses artificial intelligence to assess the quality of their contribution and provides a detailed analysis to the teacher. Digitance provides flexible and fair assessment across a wide range of options for student participation so that any student can participate comfortably in a way that suits them. A core feature of Digitance is the Assure Index, a monitoring tool which scores the likelihood of a student cheating on assessment. When a student's score is flagged, the teacher or invigilator can verify that the student's assessment was fair. Digitance has been developed by Studylytics, a company accelerating e-learning analytics. So welcome everyone to the episode, Convenience of Digital Tools. And thank you very much for joining me and my co-host, Joanna van der Merwe. But as usual, before we get to all the juicy stuff, I'd like to give everyone the opportunity to introduce themselves. Joanna, can we start with you? Hi, uh, I'm Joanna van der Merwe, and I'm the Privacy and Protection Lead at the Center for Innovation. Um, my job is basically to focus on the practical implementation of data responsibility into education. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dan Romijn. I am Team Leader of Professional Development at ICLOM, and uh, our department is responsible for supporting teachers and faculties in, uh, in teaching, basically, and improving teaching, being able to communicate with students well in a didactical manner. And uh, we've also been helping a lot of teachers, of course, in the past year with online learning and everything involved with that. Hello, I'm Bastian Mielke. I'm a second year student in the Leiden University College The Hague and have been studying there throughout the pandemic and the year before that as well. Nice and short. Well, now that everybody's caught up and we all know that the tool we created for the university is fictional, we can dive into the first part of the podcast. And that's to discuss in detail how you felt about it when you first heard it, what your initial thoughts were, so if you could be as objective as possible, and hopefully also you would have by now forgiven me, if you would like to start, Dan, I would appreciate it. 
Sure. Um, well, I was a little bit confused as to what the purpose of the tool was because, um, uh, uh, as Alex explained, it was a tool for, it seemed to, at first, a tool to check the contribution that students were making to be able to grade or to assess their participation. But then afterwards, I thought it was meant as really checking during an assessment, as in a final assessment, what students were actually answering. So I, I wasn't really sure what the tool was on. So first of all, I found it confusing. But um, the first idea I had is that it was, so let's say students type something in a chat section and then the tool can sort of check like, hey, is this real or is there plagiarism or something like that. And as soon as I heard that participation was graded, I am very much against that because grading participation is very complex because participation very much depends on the teacher. So if I am a kind of teacher that likes to talk a lot, um, I don't give a lot of room for my students to actually participate. And what you need then is students who are, you know, uh, at the front and who actually dare to speak up. But um, if students don't want to do that or don't feel comfortable or safe, they won't very quickly do that. In an online setting, that is even worse. So if you are alone in your home, if your camera switched off or whatever, it's very easy to not interact. So grading participation, you need to have very clear criteria for that, and you need to have very good didactical skills to even be able to do that. So that was my first thought on hearing about the tool. Bastien, what were your initial thoughts? And maybe how many times did you actually listen to it? I literally listened to it like three or four times because I, I couldn't really believe it, <laughs> which turned out to be a good instinct. I should listen to that more. Yeah, I had, I had similar confusions about what exactly the tool and when exactly the tool would be deployed, as Dan just mentioned. Something else that worried me was that independently of the, the, this aspect of, okay, every teacher uh, thinks of participation differently, there's also an aspect of um, in online learning already so much human interaction being lost and me feeling like this would perpetuate this even further in the sense that now some of the interaction that we have in class that's actually human are people writing funny jokes into the chat from here and then just to make everybody chuckle up for a second and i was like oh what effects will it have on this or people having just quick conversations about like whether or not uh, everybody can see the slides in the cultura room and it's like what would the system do with that? Would that count at participation, but it's a bad participation or would it not count as anything if we filled it out? Like, yeah, this just just these cultural things that do happen to develop in, in classrooms and, and what uh, it would do to that was what worried me the most, I think. And then by the time it had come to the flagging up cheating to the teacher, I was like, okay, um, why are we also doing this? I already found the other part worrying enough. Um, and then in general, I, I just have like, uh, I wrote a couple of things down and I just wrote really bigly down like, and what exactly are you doing with the data? <laughs> like what exactly happens to all these contributions that you make? Because it's already such a weird thing of what happens to academic contributions of students that they provide during class. Like, right, is it still their property? Is it the school's property? Like this is already an interesting conversation. But then I feel adding a third player that monitors, records and evaluates all of that and it also has some degree of claim over these things. Like, I'm not sure if that's a great addition to the problem or if it's just making it even bigger. Very good point. And I'm sure Joanna will address a couple of them. So Joanna, can you just give us a brief idea of your thought process? 
what was going through your head when you were creating this digital tool? And address some of the concerns and things that both Dan and Bastian either picked up or did not, especially uh, for the listeners out there so that they know what to look out for if they ever come across such a horrible tool. Okay, um, it's uh, really good to hear your comments on the tool and what you picked up on, as I think it was exactly what I'd hoped you would pick up on. Some background on how I came up with the tool. All of these functionalities are ones that either already exist uh, and are being implemented in other sectors or patents that have already been filed by companies but are yet to be rolled out that we know of. Um, others were points of inspiration uh, that came from books such as Raced After Technology um, by Ruha Benjamin or the TV show Black Mirror. You know, and, and in real life, you're seeing the social scoring system in China and Facebook already has a patent on a similar system for its uh, education site. In the US, you're also seeing the likelihood of recidivism for uh, convicts in the justice system. So what we did is we brought these functionalities together to see what the discussion would be like if they were implemented within education. The tool was originally a lot bigger, and this was just two functions that we ended up selecting. The wording that was used in the jingle are phrases that are often used by companies when they're selling digital tooling, especially in the education sector. For instance, data-driven tool. Here, my, my flags go up with the same questions as you, Bastian, about what data, where is it from? Is it only the data collected by the tool or is it being combined with other data from within the university or obtained from third parties? You know, the term, the terms analytical approach and artificial intelligence, you know, my mind goes to what kind of biases can be built in? How do we audit automated um, analysis systems? I think you've already highlighted that the fact that participation grading is so complex um, is one of these questions around biases. Have the creators of the tool taken this into account? Have they truly understood the contexts in which the tool will be used? Are they talking to people like you, Dan, whose job it is to understand this? Are they talking to students to understand their side of what happens in conversations during online teaching? I could go into a lot more technical detail about all the challenges and concerns I have about these tools, but I am happy to hear you both have picked up on the exact flags. So I think the reason we went for this version of the tool is because what I heard from teachers throughout the pandemic was just the overwhelming amount of work which I don't think is just limited to this period, but the rapid change in how we teach probably added quite a bit to that. One of the challenges that does exist in the online world is participation grading and how to participate in discussions. And there are a number of barriers to it, like you highlighted, Dan. And the aim of the tool was to create a setting in which all students would be able to speak up. As you said, some students may not be able to or comfortable with speaking up over video call, but are more comfortable or able to participate through a chat function or a discussion board. So this was aimed at, at facilitating that. The cheating assessment came out of the experience with proctoring as we tried to build in some of these more sensitive subjects and see how they may be built into other tools and other areas of grading. This was seen as an addition to help teachers prioritize which students are more likely to cheat and therefore the flags be taken more seriously, which is also related to the kind of recidivism uh, tools you're seeing used in the U.S., um, so yeah, that's just a bit of a background as to where the tool came from and why we designed it the way we did. It's interesting, Joanna, that, that you say that the tool uh, sort of suggests to be an answer to a problem, but to be honest, I wasn't even sure what the problem was. Um, and I think a lot of tools often claim to be a solution to a problem, but, but it's like, hey, here's the solution and we'll find the problem for you. And um, 
if a tool wants to really sort of promote itself, it should give a clear idea of understanding the setting that it should be used in and indeed talking to people who will be using it or who have to say something about it or whatever. And it was, it was just too much of a claim they were making. Yeah, um, maybe to add to that, and I hope I'm not grabbing too too far forward with that already, um, but but just when I think about these online tools and how they, sh they should support education, I always think, well, what they have to do is make it seem like it's not online anymore, right? Like they have to take away these barriers between the teacher and the student. And in that way, the cheating feature seemed even better to me than the grading feature, because in the cheating feature, at least the teacher still got a last call on saying, I think he has cheating going on or not. While with the grading feature, the teacher was actually removed from the entire situation and didn't even have to read the blog posts and chats and all of that anymore. And the computer would do it for them. So, so in that feature, I was, yeah, that was very, very concerning to me that it was like, oh, we will take the teacher even further away from the student. We will make the, the space between them even bigger. We will make the teacher also less, um, just like, palpable and understandable to the students because now I don't even have the feedback from the teacher anymore to go off on to figure out what's the right and wrong thing to do and, and how this classroom works, right? And, and I think that in of itself is probably even a bigger problem that they're creating as they're going. It's a bigger problem than the problem of teachers just having too much work, right? Because it's ultimately something that makes teachers obsolete. And I'm not sure if that's what either the education industry or the students or the teachers want. Some might say that's the future of teaching, but who knows? <laughs> exactly, Dan, that's that's what I was going to say. I think that this is something that I've seen throughout my research uh, is addressing problems that may not necessarily be a problem, but also inadvertently creating new problems. We need to build a foundation of identifying which parts of teaching can use digital tooling to not necessarily replace, but rather support teachers and which parts of their jobs can and should be replaced in a way and which we do need to enhance the technology for. Um, I really think we need to close the gap between those that are developing the tech and those who understand the human parts of teaching so that they can really complement each other and work together rather than be in competition. Yeah, it, but it might be the whole problem in itself at, at how do people look at technology. So the to me, the whole idea should be that it supports teachers and that it shouldn't take over parts of their jobs. It's just like people putting their entire story on PowerPoint. That's not what the purpose of PowerPoint is or ever was actually. PowerPoint was designed as a supporting tool. But uh, you know, if you put your entire text or whatever you want to say on a slide, then why should I go to your class if I can just read it from a slide? And this, the same goes for any other tool that is developed. Um, if, it should, if, if the idea is that it takes over parts of what teachers do, that takes away the social aspect of what learning is. Yeah, and I think that was actually one of the um, yeah, most worrying parts of the advertisement, how it started with saying, well, in 2020, everybody figured out that we have to do online education, right? And it's like, oh, really? Like, do we all now think that online education is exactly how we should continue for the rest of our lives? Um, it's it's and, not it, how I picked it up, to be honest, Bastion, but okay. <laughs> I mean, maybe I picked it up the wrong way then. But 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 all that I can say is that if you if you want to, uh, to insult anybody in this building where in my student housing, it's probably best to just call them. Uh, you are online education, and they will they will get that you don't like them, because because everybody here is is pretty unanimous in understanding um, what the value of having a real teacher in a real classroom with you was, and 
And so, yeah, but how did you pick up on that initial statement and the advertisement? Well, the, how I interpreted it was more that in 2020, we, whoever that is, uh, uh, finally noticed that online education uh, is possible or that it has an added value or that we already knew that it existed, but now we see the, the potential of it or something more on those lines that, hey, we, we knew it existed. Uh, but we didn't really use it yet because it wasn't really necessary. But now we were sort of forced to use it and we see it can have an added value. Um, something, something more on those lines. That's that's how I interpreted it. Yeah, maybe then, then I didn't express myself well, but I also took it as something along these lines. And that's what I'm saying, right? Like, I don't think that many people in this building would be like, oh, whoa, this added value, value is crazy. Like, I don't think that many students that are experiencing this right now are like saying, wow, now that I've tried online education, I'm hooked on it. I want forever to be in online classrooms. What most of them say is, I can't wait until I'm sitting in an in-person classroom again and see the face of my teacher in their PowerPoint with too many words on it. Yeah, we miss that. No, so it's it, it's really the question of, you know, getting the best out of both worlds when it's possible again, I guess. And, and there are added values, definitely. But I mean, those added values are not new. This was no five or 10 years ago just as well, but it hasn't really been implemented yet. And now we finally see how it can be implemented with still a lot of pitfalls and mistakes and, and messes and stuff like that. But we have to take out the good parts and make those stronger and then combine it with uh, on-location education. I just quickly want to interrupt. Um, Bastian, do you feel that students are concerned that the move will be more to online education and that they're going to lose their in-person teaching time? Mm, I'm not sure if it's concerned that all students have. I definitely have heard it in some conversations. That I've definitely also thought about it myself, just in terms of seeing how much more economical it also sometimes is. For example, if like the parts of the education are are given like in like a life setting and in, in the sense that, that the teacher actually has to be there in the classroom but uh, what they're increasingly doing as well is that they have pre-recorded lectures and those feel like they may be here to stay and i'm not sure how i feel about that the concept that the teachers records once um uh over the powerpoint a little voiceover and then keeps on using that because it means that it doesn't that they don't have to actually go back to the readings and don't actually have to go back to their slide notes but can just send you the video again and be like, you don't have to show up to lecture this week. Here's your pre-recorded one that I did six years ago and I'm pretty proud of it. And and so I don't think, like I personally don't think that that all of it is to stay, but I do think that there are a couple of things where I see teachers start to eyeball and be like, ooh, that could be interesting if you could keep that. And usually these are not the parts where the students are like, oh yeah, that's where I got some added value out of this. And, and is this coupled with a concern with what it means that students will need to spend more time on these digital tools or necessarily having to hand over more data? Because the more you're going into this online education, the more data you have to hand over to get your education, especially when there is stuff like behavioral data being collected, as well as teachers all using different tools. Is there a concern from the student side that, about what this means for them? I would formulate the student's concern more in terms of accessibility. In terms of like, now I do have to have a laptop to go to university. Like in my first year when I arrived here, um, a couple of my co-years only had like an iPad maybe, or some even only had a phone and then got a laptop given by the school and that was fine. But these old laptops that the school give don't necessarily are able to do all the nice shenanigans that we need to do now with online education. And so if these tools are going to stay, I feel there's, a, there's, there's now there's expectations on students to bring 
up-to-date um, technology with them and just happen to have that, irregardless of like socioeconomic background, I feel that that's a bit bit more worrying from the student's perspective because, yeah, it it also selects for different people to join higher education, I guess. The privacy concern I've actually heard more often formulated by teachers that are like, oh, but now that I did this pre-recorded lecture and I l put it up on the lightest server, does that mean that the university now owns my pre-recorded lecture? And does it mean that they can still use it after I have retired or after I've switched jobs? So that part of uh, of being worried about uh, data remaining in university has been phrased more clearly and more often, at least around me, um, than the students' concern. What I found interesting, Bastian, about what you said is the, you know, the pre-recorded lectures, because the potential idea behind it is that it frees, uh, frees up time for the lecture to actually discuss the content so that you can, as a student, watch it in advance with preferably a couple of guided questions. But these are all the didactical kind of tips that we give from, from my department. Like, hey, it's nice that you have a video, but be sure that you have some guided questions so that Bastian knows what he needs to listen to and what he needs to take out of the video. So that in class, you can then discuss it on a much deeper level than just listening to a lecture talking for an hour without any interaction. And, and that that idea is, is old, it's 20 years old, you know, before we use the internet like we do now. So in that sense, there's nothing new to what we're doing, but it's really thinking about it much more thoroughly and implementing it in a better way. So. What I'm kind of hoping is that teachers who are now recording their lectures and doing all this stuff online is that they still keep using that later on. I, I do see how, how it's an old solution and how, how it solves a couple of problems and how it can help free up time. But I do think that approach may underestimate what the value of a lecture may be. Um, sure, so but couple, it, it, so, it doesn't take away like the knowledge of the lecture. So the lecturer oh, okay. should still be able to, of course, you know, uh, present his ideas and, and experience in, in a class. Okay, le then let, let me phrase out what I think these added values that, that may be gone in the pre-recorded lecture are. Um, and I will, I will start with the more obvious one and I will go to the less obvious one. The more obvious one is in an actual lecture, the teacher can look at their students as they're going and see that the attention is still there. And the lecturer can feel by the room if they're losing the students or not. That means the teacher can maybe say, okay, I think I lost you guys, what are the questions? And, and interrupt their lecture for some communication. And I think that ongoing interaction between teacher and student in a lecture is really important to keep the, uh, the attention span going on. And the word attention span is I think the one that, that a lot of people talk about when talking about how online education is failing, right? Like we, we don't manage to keep the people engaged because we don't manage to give them the feeling of real human interaction that is what psychologically triggers us to stay engaged. So that's the more obvious one. The less obvious one is, um, and I will talk about my sister here who's studying computer science in Germany, um, that she, because she now only started, started the masters within the pandemic, never went to an in-person lecture, which meant that she never met her co-years. She never met the other people in her year studying the same subject which means she has a way harder time asking for help from her, from the other students, right? Like she only asks for help now from the students that she knew from before. And, and that's really tricky, right? Like the lecture, like the, the waiting room in front of the lecture and the leaving to, the, to lunch after the lecture and the whispering while the lecture to your neighbor and all the social capital that's built up there 
that makes studying like an an endeavor that you that you go on together. All of that is also lost if I'm sitting alone in my room or alone in the library listening to a lecture. And I think these are added values that may not be super tangible and super measurable, but I think they're super important. Absolutely. I mean, I I I agree totally with you for sure. Um, so I think it's it's looking for a well balanced combination of both because some pieces of theory and explanation can also be taken outside of the classroom. And I'm not talking specifically about looking at a, at, a, at a video recording of an hour, because that's way too long, but short videos, what we call knowledge clips of about seven to 10 minutes in which a lecturer just, you know, dives into whatever concept or theory that you can look at in advance so that you have more time in class to talk about it in depth. That's, that's the basic idea behind it. Yeah, because I, I'm, I'm, I also think that, you know, pre-recording an entire lecture of an hour or two hours is, is killing. I mean, you can't keep your attention to keep looking at that. Uh, it's way too much. Can I ask you a mean question? No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so I, I completely see the idea of the six to seven minute clips, right? But, but what I start wondering at that point is, why is my teacher here who has not been educated in making engaging short video material better at it than John Green on Crash Course, right? Like, like why is why don't we just take short clips that have been created for the exact purpose of being for the masses and being engaging and keeping the attention span up and are made by professionals who know about video production and are not made by a maybe elderly teacher in their home with their webcam and like a microphone three meters away from them. So you like hear them whisper, and right? And the laundry behind them. The no, laundry sure, behind them, right? You're absolutely right on that. But that's also one of these, we, the advices that we give, like, hey, if there's a better video online, and the problem is because there's millions of videos, take that, maybe take a snippet from it, you know, say, okay, you only need to watch 2.17 in the video up until 3.50, uh, because that guy or girl can explain it way better than I can. Um, sure, why not? Is that something teachers do, you think? Like, do you think teachers are, are good at accepting that someone else explains better than them? <laughs> yes and no. It, it depends, I, I guess, on the discipline, on how usable it is, how much editing it needs. And also, I mean, you know, lecturers need to find the material and that, that takes time. Yeah. So then sometimes it is just easier to do it themselves. Yeah, I see that. But on the other hand, I mean... Um, it's about the explanation, I guess, and not necessarily the quality. So uh, who cares, you know, if you see someone's laundry in the background, to use a silly example. Um, okay, unless it is really, really distracting, of course, but, you know, there's very basic things you can do about that. Just take a blank wall. That's it. Um, and nowadays, you know, all, the, all the, the, the tools and the gadgets that we have, recording is easy. You can do it on your phone even if you need to. So uh, you don't need to put a huge investment in it either. Okay, my turn. <laughs> oh, you're, you're still here. <laughs> Great to have you back. <laughs> okay, Dan, I would like to know how you go about implementing new digital tools in your work or in your daily life. What procedures do you follow and what do you look out for? First of all, I try to use tools that are uh, compliant to all the university rules. So, you know, we kind of know which tools those are. And if there is, uh, if those tools don't do what I want them to do, which is rarely the case, to be honest, um, I first of all ask our ICTO manager, like, hey, can I use this? And the answer is usually something like, preferably not, unless you have a really good reason. And as long as the users don't have to give their personal data and information. 
And as long as you are very clear about that, that's kind of the, uh, the way to go. Then a question for Bastian. How are these tools normally presented to you or your fellow classmates? And do you also have to follow protocols and checks before you actually get to use them? Uh, that's a tricky question because I do know that I don't follow protocols before doing them. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to. Um, and, and I think that, that that actually hits on a big problem uh, that, that Dan has mentioned a couple of times in terms of like having to balance it well, right? Because if the first class of a, of a semester or a block is in person, a teacher explains what digital tools are going to be used and then you can in person discuss and debate that out and figure out what the exact ideas behind that are and the, the pitfalls and, and the advantages, then that's great. But in the pandemic setting where you don't have that first class where you meet in person, it means that that first class already happens in the digital tools, right? And 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 there there you get into a, to a little bit of a problematic area where it's like, well, I can't object to this because I'm already doing it as we're speaking. So, Joanna, in your opinion, what rights do teachers and students have when being presented with digital tools that you know of? Because that is kind of your job to make sure that they use the good ones, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start answering this question with a bit of a disclaimer that I am not a lawyer. Um, but to answer this question, I always focus on transparency, which is linked to what Bastian just pointed out. Students and teachers need to be able to know what data they are handing over um, with the use of tools and participate in discussions around whether this should be acceptable or not. I just wrote down the quote from Bastian because I think this is something that I personally have not addressed enough, um, is that how can a student or teacher object when they already have to use the digital environment just to be able to object? I'm concerned about the amount of training we are providing to the teachers and students to empower them to participate in the discussion, but also implement privacy and protection into the way they work. There's quite some expectation that's been placed on them to be able to protect themselves and have the discussion and voice their concerns. But the foundations need to be made stronger so that everybody can take part in this discussion uh, and the problem-solving process. Yeah, something I would like to add to that is that that, that is a very noble approach, but that the active problem that we're facing right now is that there's a hierarchy of needs and the need of understanding how these tool works at all is way before the one of how does this work and is it like privately, uh, privacy-wise uh, fine with us, right? Like the main conversations that I have about digital tools with other students and teachers are not, do we think this is the appropriate tool for teaching given the privacy and data concerns that we have, but it's, is this the appropriate tool for teaching at all and how does it work and how can we use it better, right? It, we're still in that stage where most students and teachers are figuring these things out to make them working at all and not make them work in a way that suits them for in, in their privacy concerns or anything else. It's just, it, it seems in some classes to be like pure survival. How do I unmute myself? You know, that's really interesting, Bastian. And I think that points to the flexibility needed throughout the evolution of a crisis. At the peak of the crisis, you may need to place different needs at different levels in the hierarchy. For example, during the crisis, continuity of education was vital. But as we move away from the peak of the crisis and we get more space and a little bit more breathing room, we need to have the flexibility to reorganize the priorities and maybe reprioritize the need for inclusive and transparent discussion around topics like privacy and protection. The thing with privacy and protection is that people sometimes don't prioritize it until it's too late. And so it really is up to the people like me and you to really push for it being a priority when assessing the tools. But I think one of the most important aspects is that privacy is contextual. 
and students and teachers are the experts in their context. So they are vital to ensuring that the measures that are put in place and what tools are and are not allowed are best suited to them. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Dan, anything you want to add to that? Um, no, not really. Uh, just the only thing I, I would kind of expect that if a university offers tools that can be used, that it has all been checked privacy-wise and that a teacher doesn't have to you know, think about it and can just use it without having to ask any questions. And I guess that, that goes back to, to the discussion of how, how much of our own responsibility it is to inform ourselves. But that's what I kind of assumed had happened when also my university had first only approved some tools for uh, video classrooms and then one by one unlocked more and more. I was like, oh, are they vetting them to make sure that there's nothing concerning about them? Because again, at least consciously, I've not uh, been warned about privacy concerns with any of the video platforms after they have been approved by the university. Okay, so I have a question for you, Bastian. Well, a uh, few of them, actually. As a student, do you feel that you should have more say when presented with new digital tools, number one? Number two, should students have a choice or is this something you don't normally think about? And number three, do you have any suggestions on tools? And if yes, do you even get a chance to use them? Um, I think these are all very good questions. I do think that it's important just because we have talked about privacy so much that, that I restate that the preference of tools for students, or at least for me as a student so far, is mainly based on convenience and how much of the normal teaching experience I can get through them or how much of a valuable, because it could be a different one, but how much of a valuable teaching experience I can get from them. Given that preface, that means that usually students don't have much say in what tools are being used because students will just rely on whatever the teacher can deal best with at the moment. Because we are often lucky and happy when the teacher understands one tool very well, forcing them to use a different tool then. And again, I'm talking mainly about the video conference tools here. It's usually shoot, shooting yourself in the foot because it means that the teacher has to relearn the software. And it means that you will have a lot of trouble the next time a, a PPT has to be shown or whatever. So, so usually there's not much say of students, even though we may be asked, but it's like, well, I could recommend you a different software, but there's no way that, that this would go smoother than us just moving on with this this software that we have at the moment. And again, given that I'm talking about video conferencing tools, I also don't think that there's one that is like exceptionally way, way better than all the others. And they are also constantly changing. Like right now we're doing this on MS Teams. And since a couple of days, I think the hand raising function now also has these like emojis that you can add which means that now it's two click until you raise your hand. And that's something I feel like is not perfect because I'm like, well, I want to raise my hand as easily as possible, exactly how I want to unmute myself as easily as possible. But, but what I'm trying to suggest here is that these tools are also changing as we're going, which also makes it hard as a student to have a preference because maybe I loved MS Teams before I had to do two clicks before I could raise my hands and now I'm hating it, right? It's these tools are changing and these tools are figuring out new things. And these companies are also figuring out new things about what's convenient. And um, just because you did ask for preference, something that I recently found in, in Zoom as a software that I enjoy a lot, a lot, a lot, is that they have made it so that you can, if you're muted, press the space bar to, uh, not permanently, but uh, for, the for the duration of which you hold the space bar, 
are unmuted and can talk, which is perfect for the class setting, right? It's like perfect. I press this button, as I press this button, I talk, I leave it, I'm definitely muted again. I don't have to worry about my mic being accidentally kept on. Like like these, and these are small features, right? Like these are not the, the big things that, that one probably thinks about in the data privacy center or that school thinks about when choosing a software, right? They think about so many other big things. But then for us students, I think it's mainly these small practical things. What is the shortcut to unmute myself? What's the shortcut to raise my hand? How easy is it to refresh the call if someone's video stops working, right? Like in MS Teams, for example, that's horrible. If your video would stop in MS Teams for me right now, what I would have to do is leave the call and come back in. That's annoying and costs a lot of time. In Kaltura, for instance, it would just mean refreshing the page and it would work again. And, and, and it's these small practical things that really are making a difference for our students in what our preference is because all we care about in the end, and that's again the, the, the hierarchy of needs and the need of education being on top of it that I've mentioned earlier, it's like all that we want is that this education experience goes as smoothly as possible and we get as much interaction with our teachers as possible so we can have as much learning together as possible. And that is too often impeded by tools that don't have the practical features that we do need them to have. Yeah, we're definitely going through the growing pains and we definitely have a long way to go, I think. Yes. And even though you said there is no ideal tool, I still have a question saying, do you have an ideal tool that you wish or at least could tick off all the boxes? And if yes, what is that tool at the moment? I think at the moment I'm actually most happy with MS Teams because it uh, combines the idea of the video conferencing with also having some space that you can share stuff with your teacher and so and just the amount of power that the teachers seem to have about how to design their channels uh, seems very nice to me. So some teachers have like own channels for miscellaneous stuff where students can post funny links that they that they found and that vaguely relate to the course, but but maybe shouldn't be posted in the main channel or in like a main discussion board. And so the level of customization that seems to be able to be done in Teams uh, strikes me as really, really important and really, really good because it does mimic a classroom the most in the sense that there's still the poster hanging from last class because there's still the chat from last class up when you, when you scroll up a little bit. So that is really nice. But I will, will say again that these tools are changing all the time and that they are developing in different directions all the time. And that if I could just design a perfect tool, I would take some of the stuff from Kaltura, some of the stuff from Zoom, some of the stuff from MS Teams, some stuff of Kahoot probably, right? And just just mash it all together. Because I do think that much of the functionality that students, or at least I as a student am looking for, is already out there. It's just not in one place. And, and that's, I think, what you also mean with Growing Pains, is all these big companies and these small companies figuring out what are the things that work best, what are the tools being used the most, and which of these things do facilitate conversations and which of these tools don't facilitate com uh, communication. And Dan, do you have any tool that you're rooting for or actually use all the time? There's this thing called the whiteboard. It's really old fashioned. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no actually, I completely agree with Bastian. I mean, uh, they all have something good. They all have something bad and it's never going to be perfect. Um, so whatever tool you choose, it automatically means there's going to be some aspects that just suck. That goes hand in hand, but it's the same with if you teach on location, it depends on which classroom you are in. There's always something that's not going to be up to your standards or needs, but that's also what teaching is about being able to be flexible and not get stressed out and just, you know, work with what you have. 
Yes, that's a good point with the stress factor. And I think we should definitely dive into that topic at another time. With that said, though, I have one last question for all of you. The answer is yes. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> no, in all seriousness, uh, the question is, how far are you prepared to give up privacy for convenience? I think farther than I probably already expect I'm doing. I mean, I'm on Google, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. So, I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, if I would have like a checklist, okay, if you agree to this, it means you give up on this, 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 and this. I would, And, and I would actually know what I'm giving up on. Probably not as far, but let's be honest, I have no idea what I'm giving up on. Uh, I, I was nodding intensely as Dan was speaking. Um, and I, I, I just, I think I disagree a little bit with the with the basic idea of the question of it just being that one trade off between convenience and and privacy, because again, in the discussion that we've been having, this has at least been mediated uh, by the factor of education, right? It's like, because I could say I don't want to give up any of my privacy, and that would just mean I would have to defer for a semester here because there's no way that I can continue my education without doing that, right? And then, even, and then only in between the tools, I, I maybe trade these off. But again, then the, the powers with the teachers, it's not my choice. It's do I show up to class or not? That's my choice. And that's education, that is money, that is time. These are all these other factors that come in. So it, so it, it is at least in the educational context, definitely never a trade-off just between convenience and, and privacy. Um, but then my in, intense nodding was mainly directed at, at how, how Dan phrased it. Uh, his answer in relation to the digital tools that I use in my free time there exactly hap it happens exactly as, as Dan is talking it's like you find a tool that's very useful and there you don't read the checkboxes that you're clicking and the checkboxes are not written in a way that you can easily understand them and so you click them because you want a tool because you want a convenience so yeah for that part I'm completely on Dan's side I just don't think that especially in educational uh, situations that is really the trade-off that's happening. I think it's a way bigger trade-off and I think it gives you way less wiggle room than in your private life. Yes, absolutely. Joanna, your turn. What are you as a privacy protection lead prepared to give up for convenience? Um, if I'm honest, I get asked this question a lot and it's always really difficult for me to answer. I have done a full audit of my data and tried to see how much data I give off and the level of privacy that I would like is very high, but like Dan and Bastian said, it's not even just a convenience trade-off. It's almost the ability to live your life trade-off. Just looking at trying to switch from WhatsApp to Signal Messenger has been, it's been near impossible for me because of the social sacrifice that comes with it. Because you have to cut yourself off from certain people and certain groups who only use one of the platforms. So... I do not want to give away a lot of my privacy, but I do because of the way the world is designed, which is why I do what I do in order to try and solve that larger issue. So in conclusion, I am prepared to give up a lot, but very uncomfortable with it. We have come to the end of the podcast. Can you well, believe but, but it? Monica, how far are you willing to go? I mean, you haven't answered your own question. Oh, no, I'm terrible. Um, I give up anything just to try a new tool. <laughs> I am a slave to digital technology. Um, I've given my soul to Facebook because I like using the Oculus and also having a son at the age of 13. You know, that's his life. And if I want to stay connected with him, then I have to give up 
all the privacy information. So, so you, you, you don't talk to your son anymore. You just send him chat messages and pictures. Exactly. Hey, everyone, my mom is on Facebook. <laughs> it's sad, I know. Yeah. Or, or meet him in a digital environment, like in VR or whatever. That's where we connect. It's disgusting, I know. And I mean, there's even a not disgusting part to it, right? Because like, since I moved out uh, from home, most of my communication is happening with my parents is happening via those tools. And of course, before these tools were there, I would have sent them like a letter or called them on like a landline or something. But now I don't feel like that's necessary anymore because I have those tools. And so I do also force them into these, into these bargains about their privacy in wanting to stay connected with me and my siblings and I guess their friends, right? And, and there are clear values to it. And so... Yeah, I, uh, I, I do really see what you're talking about, Monica, and I do think it's a very valid point. Just because, yeah, like if I shared a picture on Instagram and I know my mother is on Instagram, I'm less likely to then also put it into like our WhatsApp group or print it out and send it via mail, right? Like that, that does not seem like a necessary step anymore because I have already shared this memory with the world. I think that's the way of the future and we just need to know our rights and hopefully try and control what we do as much as possible, but eventually, <laughs> I don't know, maybe the big companies will win, right? So I, I just pulled a face at Monica because the big tech companies will not win because there are people like me trying to fight to make sure they don't. So, and also just whilst you were speaking, I was reflecting that we started exactly with a tool that was created by, and now we know, fictional big company trying to help solve a problem that wasn't really there. And the fact that we knew throughout the process of creating the tool prior to the podcast that there was going to be quite some resistance, which in my mind shows that there will be pushback against big tech and the future will see a shift back to more privacy and protection focus. I mean, you're already seeing it with GDPR pushback, um, Australian governments pushback against Facebook and Google. So I am optimistic about the future and I don't think we are going to continue to have to give up all of our privacy in order to simply be social. It won't happen tomorrow, but it, it will happen. Yeah, and on that optimistic note, I also do think that we sometimes construe how, how young all this technology is and how fair it actually is that the governments have not yet gotten control of it, right? Like how old is social media with the addicting mechanisms that it is having now, right? Like it's not that old. And of course, like when when advertising first started, on the TV, there was also very little regulation on it. And it took people to figure out, oh, this is dangerous. And then they fix it, like the same way with slot machines, right? It's like, there was a couple of years where slot machines could be done by 12 year olds. And then the governments figured out, oh, we have to regulate them, right? And we may just be right now in the wild west of um, online communication. But but I do think, I, I also think about this a little bit more optimistically than you phrased it, Monica. And, and I do think that the big com companies might get, um, under control by the governments over time, given also the, the higher and higher social societal awareness for what, what's going on. Thanks. <laughs> no, um, I do tend to talk in a very pessimistic way, and I really don't mean it. I'm actually a really positive person, and I love to over-exaggerate things. But as I mentioned before, we have come to the end of this podcast and I really look forward to another one with all of you again, perhaps in the near future. A big thank you once again to my guests today, Dan Romain, Bastien Milke and my co-host, Joanna van der Marven.